Thank you, choir. Again, let us pray. Oh, gracious God, Father God Almighty, this morning we come to understand you and your Son, your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning, God, help us through the words that you have given us to understand the very nature of the one we've come and we declare demands our destiny. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Uh, you should know it's on page 197 if you want to follow along. Uh, this is the Christ hymn of Philippians. So picture that the people who are reading this recognize this either as words from Isaiah that they are reading about Jesus, or as probably a song that they were singing when they gathered in worship. So uh, from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, with the same mind being you that is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us for the last few sermons on the Apostles' Creed, through the sections that were on God the Father Almighty, uh, and, and you thought to yourself as you left hearing those sermons, I like the tone of this. I like the nature of the inclusiveness Aaron is offering, that we, you know, there, as I said last week, there's many ways to slice a pie. Lots of people are pursuing the truth as long as people are doing that. The mystery of God Almighty is part of the story. If you like that, then uh, sit still for a while, because here's where the rubber starts to hit the road, or the road gets a little bit bumpy when we meet Jesus Christ in the confession. And if you kind of walked away from those sermons going, I don't know about all this, sounds a little universalist or mystic or some kind of general spirituality that has nothing in particular to do with the God we actually come to worship, then I would say you'll probably like where we're going, but sit still because the road's going to get bumpy for you too. If there is one thing, I mean, there's many things I can say, but one thing I would share with you right this morning about the person of Jesus Christ that we meet in the Gospels is that he is an equal opportunity offender. Uh, he can make anybody mad over something. And in fact, there is a reason, a very good reason, that in the week of the Passion that we remember, the same crowds who yell, Hosanna, at the beginning of the week, yell, crucify him at the end. 
because everyone in here, there is some part of us that will hear when we meet Jesus Christ something that will offend for all of us. But with that said, let's look at this because we do move on from the first person of the Trinity in God the Father now into the section on Jesus Christ. And a couple of things as we get into this section. One, understand when you look at the Apostles' Creed, it is Trinitarian. There's a section on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The section that is the longest is the one on Jesus Christ. But don't think that means that Jesus is somehow more important to the early Christians who wrote this. They cared about the whole Trinity. Just know that we are getting a snapshot into history. And so in those first few centuries of the Christian church, the reason the Jesus section got longer than the rest of them was because it was the most controversial. The early Christians were trying to figure out who Jesus was and what they could say about him. And so the stuff about the Father has already happened at that moment in history, and the stuff about the Holy Spirit, that'll come later in other confessions and creeds. But for this one, in that moment, Jesus gets the majority of the work in the creed because there was the most amount of disagreement. So that's one thing. The other thing is to recognize, in general, that disagreement always sort of fell into two categories. So some sort of give and take between confessing that Jesus is human and confessing that Jesus is God. Historically, in this time frame, for people to be able to wrap their heads around those two things being true at the same time, fully human and fully God, was a problem. Because how can Jesus be both? So a lot of the language we get here will be addressing walking into that, that problem people seem to face in the first few centuries. But with that, let's look at it. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And let's break it down. Okay? Start with Jesus Christ. And again, fully human and fully divine, in his name, we get exactly that thing that is being confessed and both are true. Because who is Jesus? Human. What is a Christ? Well, I'll explain what the word actually means, but it, it pushes us towards the idea that he's also God. When we say Jesus Christ, though, understand that those, those, that name together has deep biblical meaning, okay? So Jesus, as a name, remember, Mary gets told by the angel, you will call him Jesus. So there's intentionality in this name. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just Mary liking the name. There was intentionality there. And what Jesus is, it is a Latin translation of the name Joshua. Okay? God says to Mary, make sure that you name this child after that Old Testament character of Joshua. So here's what's important about the character of Joshua. First of all, the word in Hebrew for Joshua means the I am, or the holy name for God. That God saves. That's what Joshua means. And also remember about Joshua, that Joshua is the one that comes right after Moses as the leader of the people. And so while they're wandering out in the desert, it's Joshua who brings them across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Does it make sense why his name means God saves, or the I Am, the holy name for God saves? Because that is physically what's being acted out in that part of the story in the Old Testament is that people are wandering in the wilderness. They've been freed from their slavery, 
But where do they go now? They cross the River Jordan into their promised land. And God says, this kid, Mary, that you're about to give birth to, I want people to remember that. This one is just like that one. And then there's the word Christ. Now, Christ is not a name. It is a description. It is a Greek word that means the anointed one. So every king in the Old Testament, Saul and David and, and, and Solomon and the rest of them, the, the picture would be that they would go through some sort of being chosen by God, and then there would be some sort of like, you know, like pouring oil on their heads. There'd be this moment when a physicalization of them being chosen to be king. So you put the two together. One's human, one leans into a very divine God kind of place. But together, picture that the name of Jesus Christ means the one God has chosen to deliver you across the River Jordan. Isn't that great? Isn't that glorious? I mean, we say it in just those two words, but we say everything that is like heart-thumpingly important to the Christian faith. Because remember that, that in the ancient Israelite mind, salvation was not just you go to heaven. We can add that in, but at the time, it was literally you get to go to a promised land. Your life becomes a better thing. You go from wandering the wilderness and being lost to being in the very place God has delivered you to. And whether we make that a metaphor of heaven or afterlife, or we actually talk about Jesus Christ being the answer to the places in your lives here and now that you feel lost and are being delivered into another place, either way, he is Jesus Christ. The one who God, Almighty, the I Am, has chosen to deliver you across the River Jordan into the promise. So we start with that. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So let's talk about his only son. Maybe at a moment like this, we should pause and recognize that uh, theologically, Jesus is not God's only son. God has declared all of us children of God, right? You've heard that? You are a children, child of God. So what does it mean, the only son? Well, again, here, there is a reference going on to the Old Testament. Okay? There's a very specific place in the Old Testament where the phrase only son is used. It's when the character of Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then God says, sacrifice Isaac. I want to test you and see that you love me more than your own kid. And so the story goes that Abraham takes that son and binds him, and that's the language. God says, take your son, your only son, and they climb a mountain, and I, uh, Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, and then God says, stop. I'm going to find a different way. Okay? Do you see the foreshadowing of the Jesus story for Christians? A father who has to sacrifice his son? Your only son. And the thing about Abraham is Isaac was not his only son. He had an older son named Ishmael. But in terms of that story, the reason its only son is only becomes a synonym for the chosen son. 
right? Ishmael is Abraham's son, but he's not the one God said the promise would work through. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then on the rest of the Israelite people. Ishmael is his son, but God is talking about the promise line. And so we get to the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ, his only son. We get this reference to Abraham and someone being sacrificed and the one who's chosen, the anointed one, again, his only son. Now, let me also just say about this that, you know, between his name being Joshua and the creed putting before us the idea of um, Abraham and Isaac and kind of drawing on our imagination about this language. Understand again that these words were chosen in particular as a confession for the church because in those moments of history, those first few centuries when it was getting written, there was this big ongoing debate about was Jesus fully human or fully God? Into that debate came a particular person named Marcion. Okay? Now, Marcion himself looked at that controversy, is he fully human or fully divine? And his response was, yes, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. But, and this was Marcion's big argument, that Old Testament God, that isn't the one Jesus is praying to his father. Marcion goes, you know what, there were two different gods. The God of Jesus in the New Testament, and then this other one who's sort of inferior or weaker. And you know what, it gained some traction in those first few centuries. But every other one of our uh, founding fathers of Christianity, these famous ancient names, looked at that and said, Marcion, you're wrong. You read the Philippians Christ hymn. You read what they were singing to each other in the church from the very beginning. And what you find is that there is no distinction, that there are no two different gods. When Jesus prayed to God his Father, he is praying to the Old Testament God. And there is no distinction for Christians between that. There is his only son. They are connected. There is no distinction in any of Jesus' ministry when he says things like not, a, not anything from the law will fall away that Jesus ever intended for us to think that the God of the Old Testament was different from his Father. Never, ever happens. And so what the early, ch- early church fathers were willing to say is, look, this Marcion idea, it's no small part of it is anti-Semitic. There's no small part of it that it's a thing about just hating Jewish people and wanting their God to be different. And there's no small part of it that just completely reads the Bible wrong or gets Jesus wrong in the midst of it. And so they pushed it away. By the time it gets to us, yeah, we've kind of abandoned that. None of us are going to be Marcians. But here's what the creed, when it gets to these lines that we must pay attention to, is Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, his only son, What it's supposed to rule out for us is becoming functional Marcians. Functional Marcians. We wouldn't necessarily confess that there are two different gods, but we would do some things that look like Marcians would. Like thinking that the way we read the Bible is that the Jewish people are bad. Or, by the way, thinking then that the the Old Testament is inferior 
I say functional Marcionism because I see this all the time. It happens in me, it happens in all of us. We read the Old Testament, we read about all the violence and the war and everything that goes on, and we go, how on earth is this the same God as the God of Jesus Christ? And so we spend our times reading the Gospels and the New Testament, and then we want to push all that ickiness of the Old Testament away. Functional Marcionism is a problem just like Marcionism is. At the very least, we have to acknowledge that the Jesus Christ we call Jesus Christ, his Bible was the Old Testament. It's the Bible Jesus read. And the context of which he gives his expression of who he is is bound to that history. You do not appreciate the name Jesus unless you appreciate the name Joshua. You will not appreciate the early church saying his only son if you do not appreciate Abraham and Isaac. There's always tension there between the Christian and Jewish histories of our faith, but to become a functional Marcionism says, I can just ignore the Old Testament. And that is not the job here. The confession, if you stand say it, that his, his only son is that you recognize the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. When Jesus calls on him as father, he is calling upon the God that's in the Psalms and in Genesis and all those other stories that we have. Then there's the last line, though, here this morning. Our Lord. Talk about a bumpy ride. Here's how it's going to get real bumpy. Okay? The inclusive nature of being able to say that God is almighty and that we'll never completely understand it when we can all pursue the truth is something worth holding on to. However, when the church said Lord in those first few centuries, it wasn't an accident. It's probably one word in here that they knew more than anything else, but they were saying. Because here's the deal. Uh, in fact, this comes with a visual aid. I'm going to show you this. In the Old Testament times, there was the holy name for God. Okay? I'm going to show it to you right here. This is what it would look like in Hebrew. Y-H-W-H. And in the ancient culture of Judaism, you never said that name out loud. Because it was too cold. You never said it. Okay? So in English transliteration, you've probably seen it before, right? That name. I'm not going to say it because I'm going to do the same thing the Jewish culture did, which was respect it and say it's too holy to be said. And so when people were reading through the Bible, they weren't supposed to say this name when they came across it. They were supposed to say the word for Lord. Adonai. Make sense? You're literally reading this in temple or in your synagogue, and you come across that as you're reading it out loud, and you say to yourself, I don't say this. This is too holy. I say this. I say Adonai. Which, by the way, is exactly what you still get in your Bibles. The next time you come across the word Lord, and it's all, and it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, you're looking at the Hebrew word for Adonai, and the next time you come across Lord, but the O-R-D is still capitalized, even though it's smaller, it's because they're translating the holy name for God. Okay, pay attention to that next time you read the Bible. There is a difference in what is happening the way the Bible uses those words. But the point is this, by the time Jesus came, by the time of the early church, the Jewish community was so sincere about never saying the holy name for God, they also refused the word used to refused to use their word for Lord, which is Adonai, for anybody but God. 
Meaning when you live in an occupied state like Rome and you get told the commandment of the emperor is to call him your lord, the Jewish community was saying, we will not. And when the Christian community gathered and said, we will call him Lord, they knew exactly what they were doing because they knew exactly how hard it was to live in a world where you're working against that word. We will not call the emperor Lord. We will call Jesus Lord. So here's where the rubber hits the road. This is where the confession moves beyond just some sort of beautiful sense of inclusion and then says, if you're going to stand and say this, you're making a choice in this world. You're standing and saying something that otherwise you should never say. Jesus Christ is only son, the Lord. But moreover, it's not just the Lord, is it? It's our Lord. That sense of ownership. Where I leave behind just the mysticism of trying to understand all of truth and then saying, I'm making a choice of this is my Lord or this is our Lord. Corporate. It's that moment when you leave behind everybody has a road to God and you say, this is my road to God. Church asks you, as you stand and say the Apostles' Creed, to move beyond just a general sense of describing reality into saying, I choose a particular way to describe reality. You can slice the pie many ways, but I choose to slice the pie this way. And I choose to follow a human who's fully human and fully divine, who is the son of God. That particular person who lived here on earth and taught particular things. Do you see the rub? We go from being able to just kind of be a people who get along with everybody in the world, and then this is going to be the moment where we're going to have to do a lot of work to remain connected to the world. And you see this cross-Christian tradition, that line in the sand for us, where we go, we choose to be this, even if the world chooses to be different. So there is a rub, there is a problem, there is something here that can be hard to do, how do you continue to be humble and still confess this? You know, in Philippians, that's exactly what Paul is asking the church to do. He goes, look at that person in history named Jesus Christ. He, having the authority of God, did not seek that authority, but he emptied himself of it for someone else. Put on that mind. Recognize that you are part of God Almighty and Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, and then also remain humble enough for someone else. This is why Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, because on one hand, any intentionality that we have to be inclusive to the world begins to come into challenge with our own words here, our Lord. It also becomes a challenge because it isn't then just, oh, I'm on the side of right. The God of the universe is my God, and Jesus is Lord. I'm right, you're wrong. You still don't get to do that, do you? Humble yourself. Leave your authority at the door. Empty yourself for the sake of someone else. 
this, by the way, really is to me why on one day the people can claim Hosanna and about a week later they're yelling crucify him because how do you do that? I mean, let's consider just a few things Jesus actually taught that sort of undoes any sense that somehow we have gained a superiority by saying our Lord. Do you remember when Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Now, I know in the context, we also think about that as just paying our taxes, that he said you have to pay your taxes. But Jesus is also recognizing that discipleship in him is actually going to mean a level of indifference to what is temporary in the world. In other words, we can seek after all the power. We could seek after all the power we want in this world, claiming, hey, we've got God on our side. And Jesus is saying, let it go because it's temporary anyway. And follow after me. So when you see Christians chasing after the world's power, you have to wonder if they've misinterpreted what the Lord they say they serve is, who he is. That's one example. Also, consider this, the Sabbath that I brought up with the kids this morning. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If I had known that the, what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, what Jesus actually says in that passage about the Sabbath is, yes, the Sabbath is made for us, not us for the Sabbath. He plucks that wheat with integrity, saying, yes, you know, you don't let somebody starve because it means that they, because of this commandment. But what else he says in that is, I'm Lord over it. I get to define what Sabbath means for you. And so if there's still a debate between me and the Pharisees on whether or not you get to pluck weeds or whether or not you get to save somebody who's drowning or you get to heal somebody on the Sabbath, in the end, I am claiming my authority as your Lord, and I'm saying you do it anyway. Discipleship has a demand on us for obedience. But what happens in these stories is it's not just blind obedience, it's it's obedience that responds with, you need to think about it, guys. You need to contemplate, what is the Sabbath really for? Do you really want somebody to drown? Do you really want somebody to continue in their life unhealed so that you can keep a commandment the way you understand it? It is obedience, but it's an obedience where I expect you to think about it. And then one more. Uh, discipleship demands that we speak about meaning and ethics. There are many ways to slice a pie. There are many ways to get to a truth. There are many ways to describe that truth. But the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. One of the ones that many people will describe as a truth in this world is uh, only the strong survive. You've heard that line, right? Only the strong survive. Now that might be an accurate description of reality. You may have actually seen that many, many times in the world. That might be a, the right way to slice the pie. But with Jesus as your Lord, you can still describe reality like that. But then you've got to ask yourself, is that what he wants you to do with it? 
Is that the meaning that he makes out of that statement? Jesus says, only the strong survive, except I expect you to take care of the weak. Yeah, only the strong would survive, except I want everyone else to live too. And I expect you to help them in their way of finding life, even if they are weak. When Jesus is your Lord, it takes a humility to let go of this world's sense of power and to get into the things that he is Lord over, to use your brain and to think about it all the time, and most importantly, to remember what that Christ hymn in Philippians said, what the church was singing to itself since the beginning, which is, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord, but he emptied himself for someone else, and we have to have that mind within us. If our idea that Jesus is Lord becomes, aha, I'm right, and I'm going to win, and I'm going to take over, then you're doing lordship wrong. And you may sing, think to yourself, well, that is so frustrating. You're right, it's really frustrating. It takes an endless amount of self-reflection. It takes an endless amount of laying down your power that you have. It endlessly says that you still have to stop playing the game of us versus them and to recognize that for someone else you live and for someone else you die. And you go, come on, isn't there another way? No, this is his way. When you say our Lord, this is his way. And by the way, he warned you about this. He told you the world would call you fools. He told us that we would die for this, that the world would reject us too if we lived this way. In fact, he said, every manner of evil will be spoken against you. Falsely. Right? God always got to remember he said falsely in there. When you actually live as Jesus is your Lord and you lay down your life for everyone else, not a way to grab power, but to let it go for them, all that stuff's going to happen, he says. You're going to be called a fool. You're going to be hated. You're going to probably die for it. You will probably be called every manner of evil falsely on his account. It is the equal opportunity offender line in the confession. Fully human, fully God. The only Son of God. And, if you dare say it, your Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for sending Jesus into the world. And God, would you send your Spirit always with us into the task of being ever more faithful to him. Give us those souls and hearts and minds that you said to love him fully with. And may the very tasks before us in claiming him as our Lord remember that he wanted us, just like him, to lay down our lives for the weak, for the other, for all those that you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand and sing our next hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. It's number 240. Um. <laughs>